Today we're in Mark 10, uh, 46 to 52. Uh, so if you are someone who has a Bible there, uh, we're looking at that passage, the healing of Bartimaeus, uh, if you'd like to find your place there. But before you do, let's, uh, or as you do, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and this time we can spend together, Lord. We give you thanks that, uh, yeah, even though things don't necessarily work out great uh, in terms of sound, God, we can still be together. We can encourage one another. We can show love to one another. We can express our love to you, Lord, and hear more about you. We pray that as we look to your word now, that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord. Help us to, uh, to focus on what it is that you would have us hear from this passage today, we pray. God, might you be honoured, might you be glorified through everything we do, through everything we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Mark 10, 46 to 52, and it will hopefully be on the screen as well. Hopefully it will stay up there. We'll see. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Should I swap microphones or is it going to be just as bad? I'll keep going and we'll see. Um, you may remember a few weeks back that I said that we had started into a new section of Mark into a new act of Mark. I called it Act 2. Well, now we're at the end of Act 2. Uh, and so that's where we find ourselves today. And I said that uh, Act 2 was bookended by um, two different blind healings. And so we had the blind healing uh, of the man in Mark 8, and we have this blind healing of Bartimaeus here at the end of Chapter 10. And so Jesus, for this act, has kind of spent his time um, intently looking towards Jerusalem uh, and he's teaching his disciples that he, the Messiah, must suffer and die and rise again in order to bring salvation. He's teaching that he is the Messiah, but not the Messiah that the Jewish people had expected. In fact, uh, many scholars uh, suggest that the key verse uh, of Mark, like the absolute crux of Mark's gospel, was one that we looked at last week. It was in Mark 10, 45, which says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to turn the world upside down. He came to challenge many of the preconceived notions of the time that he lived as well as the time that we live. The Jews, they expected this Messiah who would be a conquering king, like someone who would come in and overthrow the Romans uh, and re-establish Israel back to their former glory. But as Sam reminded us last week, Jesus came not to be served, not to uh, be this earthly style of ruler, but to serve. And even more shockingly, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the suffering servant, Sam told us. And there really was just no concept in the Jewish mind for that. Like there was no, they had no 
uh, concept of all of a, of a Messiah who was a servant uh, and who would die on a cross. But that's exactly what Jesus came to be and to do. And so as the disciples and Jesus start their ascent to Jerusalem in the passage we read today, we see kind of the epitome of Jesus' upside-down kingdom played out. They've left Jericho, uh, they're heading up the hill, and they come across this blind man, Bartimaeus, and he calls out to them. And unsurprisingly, the crowds, uh, the, the passage tells us, rebuke him. Like, this is just, this is some blind beggar. They probably thought he was nothing but a nuisance. Uh, Jesus, like, really, you think, well, Jesus, he's got more important things to do. He's on a, a mission with cosmic significance here. Like, this is serious stuff. Surely the, he has better things to do than to deal with this beggar. But in this kind of upside-down twist, Jesus stops and he says, call him. Tell him to come over here. You know, I'm constantly challenged by the way that Jesus interacts with the down and out, the, the poor of his society, those who are lost and lowly. Not only does Jesus acknowledge this man, like, and he could have easily, he could have easily just ignored him, he, he, he actually calls him over and he interacts with him and he makes sure that the man's name is included in our scriptures. Like, this is not just some blind man, this is Bartimaeus and he's the son of Timaeus. Gustavo Gutierrez is a Peruvian theologian and priest, uh, and he asks a very awkward question of 21st century Christians. He famously said, you say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? You know, in the Christian church, we know that we are supposed to care for the poor. We've all read it in the Bible. Uh, we know we're supposed to do it, but we tend to do it in a way that keeps the poor uh, at arm's length. Like we sort of, we tend to just kind of, if we came across someone like Bartimaeus today, well, we might know, okay, I'm supposed to care for that guy, but we might do that by kind of throwing money at him, you know, uh, so to speak, or, or finding some, we might be willing to give money, we might be willing to give goods, uh, but deep down, I wonder if we, uh, if we do this because we actually care about that person, or if we do it because it just makes the problem go away. You know, the problem of, of uh, unsociable people, people who are difficult to deal with, is one that the church struggles with, and it's one that we struggle with here at Outlook, because we find ourselves here right in the centre of Toowoomba, here at Rumours, right in the city centre, and so because of that, it means that we have people coming in regularly who are the kind of city dwellers, and so whether they are homeless people, whether they are lost people or lonely people, often they will find their way into our church. They wander on in. And I'm going to be honest, I find that really challenging. Like, I, I used to work for an aid and development agency. I, I feel like I understand uh, what, what the plight of the poor is, but I find the, the upfront nature of it here a little bit difficult, personally. You know, we, we collect stuff, like, and I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for supporting the homeless. We collect, um, we collect stuff for the base. You know, we've given them money over the years. But again, sometimes I just wonder whether we do these things just as a kind of sanitised way of caring for the poor, just as a way of making us kind of feel better without actually having to get our hands dirty, so to speak. Like, we're a pretty middle-class church. Like, we like, to, we're pretty, we like to think we're pretty relaxed, uh, but we're pretty well put together. Uh, and when Dan and Mark were here um, a month or two ago, uh, helping us with our future planning, Dan asked a very challenging question. He said, who is it that you're trying to reach in your church? Like, are you trying to reach um, the people on the margins, the city dwellers, 
or are you trying to reach somebody else? And then he kind of clarified that, you know, because you think, oh, all the people, yeah, we're, we're trying to reach all of them, bring them all in, you know. But he clarified it even further by saying, if you are trying to reach people who are on the margins, that doesn't, that doesn't mean giving them charity. It means bringing them into your church and maybe into your homes. It means walking alongside them in the journey of discipleship. It means welcoming them in the same way that you would welcome anybody else into the church. And then when you put it like that, unsurprisingly, maybe, uh, I, I struggle with that a bit, and I suspect many of us would. I don't, I don't know that I am ready to know the names of the poor in the way that Jesus tells us to in our passage. And I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying that's where I'm at. Now, I don't think our church is kind of set up. I don't think our, our main demographic is the people on the margins, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore them when they are coming through our door and asking for our help. You know, Sam asked us last week uh, to identify our areas of passion and then to act on those areas of passion. So I want to ask today, does your heart burn for those who are on the margins of society? When you think about the plight of the poor, uh, of the homeless, of the destitute, do you yearn to help them? Because if you do, I would love to talk to you because it is something we need to do a better job of. It is something we need to get more intentional about here in our church. You know, I think it's okay that we don't all have that burning passion. I don't, uh, God gives us different gifts. Each of us have those different gifts. But if you feel like this is a passion for you, uh, even if you don't feel like this is a passion for you, I think we need to learn something from the way that Jesus interacts with Bartimaeus. Like, we need to learn that our, our sanitised version uh, of kind of, you know, throwing a loaf of bread at a poor person from a safe distance uh, is really not what Jesus had in mind when he told us to care for the poor. What does your heart burn for? Is it the homeless? Is it the down and out? Or is it someone else? In our passage, we see who Jesus' heart burns for. It's for people like Bartimaeus. And the disciples, they, they wish that Jesus would have loved and affirmed the, the rich man back in Mark 10, 17, like remembering that wealth was really important to the... They, they thought wealth was, was a sign of blessing in the Jewish religion. Uh, but in Jesus' usual way, he kind of takes that worldly perspective and he turns it upside down. And so he sends the rich man away sad and he invites Bartimaeus to come and talk to him. He invites him in, he calls him by name in, in his scriptures here. And as he does this, verse 50 tells us, throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus sprang up and came to Jesus. Now think back to that rich man. What, what did Jesus ask the rich man to do? He asked, he asked the rich man to sell everything he had and give to the poor and follow me, it says in Mark 10, 21. And it seemed like a big deal. Like we read that and we were like, oh, that's a big one. That passage, you know, this man had great possessions, the scriptures tell us. And so this rich man, he went away sad. He was unable to do it. But Bartimaeus does it. Like, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, but when the text tells us that he threw off his cloak, well, that is essentially saying that he left everything behind. Because probably all he had was this cloak. Probably this cloak was everything that had kept him warm and safe over the years. This is probably his only possession, and we see him cast that aside in pursuit of Jesus. And so what the rich man couldn't do, 
Bartimaeus does readily. He does it without even thinking about it. And it might seem easier to us to think about throwing off a dirty cloak uh, as compared to giving and selling away everything, but I think maybe that's the point that Jesus is trying to make in Mark 10, 25, when he said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, a rich person is just so tempted to idolise money, to idolise things. They have a much greater tendency, temptation towards that, and so they have a much greater responsibility as a rich person in the kingdom of God. Sell all your possessions. It does seem like a big ask, and yet the casting aside of a poor man's cloak is pretty much the same thing. He's still leaving behind all these possessions. And so what the rich man uh, couldn't do, he couldn't follow the call to discipleship, but this man, Bartimaeus, he does it. He does it without even thinking about it. Bartimaeus approaches Jesus and Jesus asks him a question that we've heard somewhere recently. He says to Bartimaeus, oh, he asked Bartimaeus rather, uh, the same question that he asked James and John last week in Mark 10, 36. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And now, uh, when we think back to James and John, uh, their response was vastly different to that of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. When, when, they, when Jesus asked them what he wanted them to do, in their kind of uh, world, current way up fashion, they said, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand, Lord. Make us great, Lord. But Bartimaeus, he's not concerned with greatness. His simple request, and really probably his fairly obvious request, is, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And so in this upside-down kingdom that is the kingdom of God, we don't, we don't actually learn good discipleship practice from the people called disciples in the Bible. In fact, from the disciples, we almost exclusively learn what not to do. Instead, we learn from this lowly, blind beggar what is required. We learn from Bartimaeus what it actually means to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. It means leaving behind whatever worldly items we are reliant on for our comfort, whether that is a dirty old blanket or whether that's a million bucks. And so the passage tells us that immediately uh, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You know, there are some passages in the Bible that say those things like, ask and you will receive, uh, knock and the door will be opened. Uh, and often these sort of passages, they, they are woefully misapplied. Like proponents of the, of the prosperity gospel will say, hey, if you pray hard enough, God, he will give you, he will grant you your wishes as if he's some kind of cosmic genie. But that's not what those sort of passages mean at all. If, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture like we're supposed to, we see that what is required is that we first leave everything behind in pursuit of Jesus and that we so align our goals with Jesus' goals, our, um, our ask, our needs with Jesus' needs, that he will answer. He does it for Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus does recover his sight. Why? Well, because God willed that Bartimaeus would have his sight restored and so, Bartimaeus asks, he receives, and he follows Jesus on the way, it says. A, that's a phrase that is used pretty often in Mark, that uh, people follow Jesus on the way. And it's a phrase that is sort of related to discipleship. And so, Bartimaeus has become a follower of Jesus. He is uh, the epitome of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. He is a whole-of-life disciple. 
But the presence of this, uh, this phrase in our text, I think, means more than just that. You know, Bartimaeus, like I said, Bartimaeus' request, like, it kind of seems like an obvious one. Like, it seems obvious enough that we kind of wonder why Jesus bothered to ask the question. Like, what, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, I want a piece of cake. Like, I want, I want to get my sight back. I'm a blind person. But I think Jesus has got good reason to ask the question. So we sort of, we've looked at the, the practical elements of the passage so far, uh, but I actually think there is a spiritual element to this passage as well. If you think back, I said that this healing, uh, blind healing, is linked to the blind healing in Mark 8. Uh, and if you think back to when we were talking about that, uh, I said, uh, and you might have been here, you might not have been here, uh, but I, I told you that I take a spiritual reading of Mark 8. And so I think Jesus really did heal the blind man, but I also think that passage is about a lot more than that. I think it's about a lot more than just the healing of a blind man. I said back then that the literary context of that healing suggests that the healing of the blind man relates to the kind of spiritual healing that the disciples are experiencing. And so his blindness points to the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And so that healing process that he goes through points to the same sort of healing process that the disciples go through. And so they weren't immediately healed of their spiritual blindness. We know that. It took time. And so the healing in chapter 8, it took time as well. And so since then, we've watched as Jesus has intentionally taught these disciples about the nature of his Messiahship. He has taught them that he is the Messiah who must suffer and die at the hands of men, that he was the suffering servant and so now we reach the end of that intentional period of training. And then we come across this current healing example. And so with all of that in mind, we see that this, this healing relates to the experience that these disciples have been through this last little while. And so where that first healing pointed to their need for spiritual uh, healing, this second one points to their readiness for the challenges ahead. And so Jesus, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well, He's also suggesting that the faith of the disciples has made them spiritually well as well. Your faith has healed you of your spiritual blindness, just like Bartimaeus, the disciples therefore are healed. They're ready to follow Jesus into what comes next. And so they begin this trek up to Jerusalem where Jesus will suffer and die, the suffering servant giving his life as a ransom for many. In our passage, Jesus, uh, Bartimaeus rather uses an interesting phrase. He calls Jesus the son of David. And this is a very loaded messianic term. Like this has really strong kind of royal and nationalistic, nationalistic uh, significance. Like this is exactly the sort of term that Jesus has been really trying to avoid for this entire time up till this point because it carries all this baggage of being a conquering king which Jesus wants to shed. But interestingly, he doesn't, he doesn't pull Bartimaeus up on it. You know, I think if the disciples had have decided to call Jesus the son of David, he might have called them Satan again or something like that. But he lets it slide for Bartimaeus. He lets it go. Uh, why? Well, because for Jesus, things have changed. Like, he's trained those who are near and dear to him. He's taught them about the nature of his messiahship, and it's going to be their job to then explain it to the rest of the Jews, uh, which, yeah, it doesn't work that well for them, but they have a crack anyway, so good for them. But for now, Je Jesus' focus has shifted. Jesus' focus is now on the work that he has to do in Jerusalem. And so the secrecy 
the messianic secret type stuff that we've seen through Mark has ended now. It's coming to an end because Jesus' ministry is coming to an end as well. It's kind of as, it's, it's almost like if Jesus, like Jesus is ascending the mountain, I reckon if he could have, he would have put on that song, The Final Countdown, like, this is it, Jesus, like, get pumped. This is what he's come here to do. This is what he's been teaching his disciples about this entire time. Jesus has come as the suffering servant, and he's come as the son of David. Now, that term, son of David, it, it has its origins in, in the book of 2 Samuel, where God says to David or promises David that his heir will reign over Israel forever. And we read about it again in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6, where God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so here's the thing. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God uh, is a place where those who wish to be great must be a servant. Where those who are rich will struggle to enter the kingdom, but those who are poor will enter with glad and open hearts. And where the Messiah, the son of David, is a conquering king, but not in the way that we would expect. Instead, he is a conquering king uh, who conquers through suffering and through service, through death on the cross. We've got a noisy corner over there, but that's okay. We love a noisy corner here. It's a family-friendly church. We're willing to put up with that, so don't worry too much about it. And even though the world still wants to tell us that we can get to heaven by being a bunch of good people, well, the good news, the gospel tells us that this is not the case. It tells us the only way that we can be saved is to accept Jesus and his death and resurrection in our place. The only way to be righteous in God's eyes is to accept, to see that the Lord is our righteousness. And so whereabouts are you at today? We've kind of looked at a few, a bunch of kind of upside down twists over the last few weeks. Which one speaks to you the most in this season? Maybe you're like the rich man. Maybe you've got uh, some worldly possession, some worldly thing that you are relying on for comfort, but which is destroying your discipleship journey. To you, God says, give it away. Get rid of it. Maybe you're a bit more like James and John. You're a bit of a go-getter. Like you want, maybe you want to be, you want, you want glory or you want power or you want respect. Maybe, maybe you are more pious than that. And so you just want to be a leader in the church here. Well, to you, God says, whoever wishes to be great must be a servant of all. He's, he not only tells us to sit down, he tells us to lie down. He says, lay down your self-focused desires and instead become a servant. And so do you want to roll in the church? You could start by packing up the chairs on a Sunday. You could start by serving in one of the, one of the service ministries, uh, maybe serving coffee. Maybe you could become a greeter. Maybe you could join something in the background that doesn't require the spotlight and take on a service role. Maybe the, one of the ways that you can do it is to take up uh, the, the request to come forward and help with the homelessness kind of outreach that I spoke about earlier. 
Maybe your issue is even more fundamental than any of these things that we've looked at so far. Like maybe you're sitting here today and you haven't yet accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Maybe you are still trying to do it in your own strength, in your own power. Maybe you are expecting to get to heaven by your own good works. Well, in the most kind of the biggest upside down twist in the whole thing, you learn that you won't get there in that way. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says it plainly. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. And here in the upside-down kingdom, self-righteousness, believing that you can get to heaven uh, on your own merit, is sin. No one is righteous, it says, not even one. Except there was one. There is one, and it's Jesus. And so maybe today God is calling you to realize that you cannot do it yourself. Maybe God is saying to you, come to me and I will give you peace. If this is you, if you find yourself in that category, we would love for you to come to the front after the last song and we're going to have our prayer team out here and they would, be, they would be delighted to pray for you. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Have you accepted that the Lord is your righteousness? If you haven't, you can do it today. Just come down the front after the last song. We find ourselves in an upside-down kingdom, and in this upside-down kingdom, self-righteousness is sin, and it will not get you there. Let's pray together. Oh God, we give you thanks that it sounds like a hard word. It sounds hard to say that none is righteous, no, not one, and it is hard. It's hard to recognize that, Lord. And yet we see that in, in, a, in a, another upside-down twist, Lord, that recognition of our own sinfulness, realizing that we are not righteous, Lord, opens up the gates for us to see that you, the Lord, are our righteousness. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you came to earth, not as the conquering king in the way that we might expect, but as a conquering king who is a servant who died on a cross for us in our place as our substitute so that you truly could claim that you are our righteousness, Lord. We pray for any who have not yet accepted your gospel message, for any who have not yet accepted your, uh, you as Lord and Saviour, God. We pray that you would be working in hearts. Lord, reveal yourself to them, we pray, and continually continue to reveal yourself to us as well. God, the gospel message is so upside down for us that we need to be constantly reminded of it. We, we tend to just fall straight back into self-righteousness. We tend to fall straight back into legalism, God. Help us not to do that. Instead, might we be like Bartimaeus? Might we lay down whatever it is that holds us back? And might we follow you? Might we follow after you? Might we be fully devoted followers of Christ, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.